to you. So glad to be with you on this uh, Sunday where we celebrate uh, what is called the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, riding into Jerusalem as king. Jesus was God breaking into our world. Uh, his coming matters. His coming changes everything. Uh, he is a king who ushers in a new kingdom. He brings an end to all oppression and evil and gloom. And we haven't seen all the results yet, but the glory has begun. The joy has begun. The victory has begun. And so the celebration has begun as well, or it should. And that's what this scripture tells us. Jesus is king. And that changes our world. It changes our worldview. Uh, nothing is the same for us with Jesus as King. Uh, now we see everything in life. We see our future. We see other people, our circumstances, even our trouble and trials, and even evil through the victory of this event that Jesus has come as King. So in this story that was just read for us, we have Jesus coming as king, riding on a donkey. And we have the crowd celebrating him as king. And there are two clear messages to us from this scripture. We are to see Jesus as our king. Behold him. And we are to celebrate Jesus as our king and God commands this. The prophecy from Zechariah begins, Behold your king. Lift your eyes up from yourself and your circumstances and see him. Look to him. He is righteous. He is victorious. And he comes with salvation. He is your deliverer, your savior. Everything is going to be all right because the king is here. Building up to this prophecy from Zechariah chapter 9, the prophet Zechariah in chapter 8 of Zechariah said, You have been cursed among the nations, O house of Judah, but now I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. I have purposed to bring good to you. Fear not. The message of the triumphal entry is the king is here. Do not fear. And that's exactly what the apostle John wrote in his version of this event. He said, fear not. Behold, your king is coming. So God wants to turn our eyes upon Jesus. He wants us to lift our eyes, to turn our eyes on Jesus as king because Jesus is the all-sufficient answer to everything. He is the salvation of, from all of our fears, the fulfillment of all of our hopes. And God desires us to behold him, and, and he commands that. Behold your king. Secondly, God desires us to celebrate Jesus, our King. And He also commands this. He commands, rejoice greatly. Shout out loud. So we are to celebrate 
the blessedness, the happiness of living under Jesus as our King. Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. A part of worship is unrestrained joy and celebration, and I think we often forget that part. There is a place for solemn, reverent worship falling on our face before God, and I hope you worship God that way at times. But God wants us to celebrate the presence of our King. Rejoicing with shouts of joy is the response that God requires for the King He sent to us. And that is what the crowd did when Jesus entered Jerusalem. In verse 8 it says, They spread their cloaks on the road and they cut branches from the trees and they spread them on the road as an act of homage or worship. It symbolized the laying down of their lives before Him. In verse 9 it says, And the crowds that went before Him and the crowds that followed after Him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you get the idea that they repeated this over and over and over. They weren't doing it necessarily in unison, but just person after person in the crowd, it was just like this, this shout of praise sweeping through the crowd. Hosanna in the highest. Now, often, or actually I would say Usually, these people are accused of being the same people who later uh, shouted, crucify him, uh, just a few days from this. Uh, and so, it is usually said that their worship was fickle. Uh, but we don't know that. It, it could be for some, without a doubt. But we don't know that. And I personally believe that much of this celebration and worship was genuine. But you know what? That is not the point. That is not the issue. The point is that they showed the kind of worship and celebration that Jesus deserved. They celebrated Jesus like God wanted and even required that Jesus be celebrated as king. So that's why Luke said, you know, some of the Pharisees interrupted this celebration. They came in the crowd and said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. The story is not about how right the crowd was. The story was about how right celebration for Jesus is. God will have his son Jesus the king worshiped and celebrated. He will. If you don't do it, someone else will. If you don't shout, somebody else will. Or something else will. Maybe even a rock or a chair or some kind of inanimate object will. Because God wants His Son Jesus celebrated as King. Sometimes, at least this is true for me, sometimes we rejoice in the Lord, we sing, we lift our hands, or we shout glory to God, just because our hearts overflow with praise. Sometimes we worship and even shout and praise just because God wants it, just because he requires that response. Shout for joy. Rejoice. Your king is coming to you. 
And this is a God-ordained spiritual priority. Derek Morphew in his book on the kingdom said, before any kind of mission or service to the world, the church is to be a celebrating community. Years ago, A.W. Tozier said, God wants worshipers first. Jesus did not redeem us to make us workers. He redeemed us to make us worshipers. And then out of the blazing worship of our hearts springs our work. It's the spiritual priority that God requires from your heart and from mine. So we celebrate simply because the king has come. Rejoice, shout for joy, your king comes to you. We celebrate simply because of the presence of our king. We are living, and for you and I now, we celebrate because we are living under the rule of King Jesus. We are living under the love and protection and the plan of our King Jesus. Jesus directs our destiny. We just sang that this morning. He is directing our lives, and he is moving our lives and moving all of human history to a culmination when all things in heaven and earth will be brought together under the authority of Christ, Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. And we who love him and we who endure with him will reign with him forever and ever. There is no lasting defeat in our future because the king has come. Everything will be all right, to put it in maybe just a little more informal language. Because our king has come, everything will be all right, and so we celebrate. And when we have stopped celebrating, we have lost our awareness of Jesus as king. I've already shared several times that I've been reading a book on the 18th century Methodist revival in Wales. And at that time, all of the people in Wales, which is a part of England, the people were under the influence of the Church of England. And their worship had become entirely formal, lifeless, dead. The author said that very few, even among the clergy, knew what it was to be born again. But then Whitfield and Daniel Rowland and Howell Harris and other Methodist preachers came, came preaching that the people were under the condemnation of God's law for their sin. And then they presented the good news of Jesus, that Jesus delivers us from the condemnation of the law and from the wrath to come. And when the people realized this, when they understood the, the joy of the, of the gospel or the good news of the gospel, often all over Wales they would spontaneously, in the middle of the preaching, leap, get up out of their seats and leap for joy and break out into song. But the author of this book that I'm reading, which was actually written uh, a couple hundred years ago, but the author said the warmth of the revival was unbearable to the established church. Why? Because they had lost the sense of blessing that comes with the presence of Jesus. They could not comprehend that people would jump for joy over Jesus Christ. 
rejoicing, uh, any kind of life, any kind of shouting for Jesus was just totally foreign to them and they didn't want any part of it. And they denigrated the revival uh, because of it. Behold your king and celebrate your king are the two unmistakable commands of this scripture from Zechariah. But I think we need to look at the bigger picture to really understand what was happening when Jesus rode into Jerusalem here just a few days before his death. When Adam sinned at the very beginning of human history, it put all of Adam's descendants, all of his descendants, everyone who has ever lived, including us, in a terrible predicament. Adam rebelled against God, and he produced a race of rebels, a line of sinners. And with sin came the misery of sin and the consequences of sin. And instead of God walking with Adam in the garden as his friend, Adam became estranged from God. He was banished from the perfect life he had in the garden. He lost the perfect joy of God's presence. His relationship with Eve became strained with conflict. He experienced spiritual darkness and death in his own soul and the loneliness of separation from God and they both as a couple were under the threat of impending judgment for their sin. And we were all born into this sinful fallen condition and we've all felt the effects of that. For things to get better, for there to be any hope at all for any human being, there had to be a way for, to remove God's anger toward our sin. For things to get better, there had to be a way to remove God's anger toward our sin. There had to be a way to remove the monstrous and terrible consequences of sin. There had to be a way to remove death, disease, conflict, gloom, and sorrow. There had to be a way to fix the brokenness of our hearts and our lives and most importantly, a way to fix the brokenness in our relationship with God. And so over time, God made it clear through the prophets that the solution to our sin and misery would come by an anointed person who was qualified to lift us out of this terrible cycle of sin and death and judgment. And God prepared, or God had the perfect answer for us. And so 550 years before Jesus was born, God told his people to celebrate the Savior King that he was sending to them. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Your king is coming. Zion is Jerusalem, but represents all of Israel. The daughter of Zion is an affectionate name for God's people. So God addresses his people. He speaks with the tender love of a father for his daughter, and he says, rejoice 
greatly your king is coming to you. And there is supposed to be a celebration because God's king is the glorious answer to every personal need and to every need they had as a nation. He would solve the problem of sin and sorrow and evil and oppression. He would bring God's people to a place of well-being and wholeness that they could only dream about. He would bring in everlasting joy, everlasting righteousness, and everlasting peace. All that was wrong with us, all that was wrong with life, all that was wrong with our world would eventually or ultimately be solved by this coming king. And so here in Matthew chapter 1, Jesus rode into Jerusalem and simply proclaimed, I am that king. I am the king that all the prophets have talked about and spoken about. No one ever makes Jesus king or Lord, and certainly this crowd did not make him king. He announced that he is king. But there are several remarkable details. They might seem like small details of this story that point to or verify that Jesus is king. And I want to go through these before we come back to what I believe is really the culmination or the heart of this story. First, Jesus is shown to be king or his claim to be king is verified because he himself ruled over this entire event. He initiated it and he orchestrated it to the very last detail. Jesus displayed his sovereign control of all circumstances and people and animals to set up his victory procession into Jerusalem. Verse one, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied up and a colt with her, untie them and bring them to me. Jesus knew the prophecy He knew who he was. He knew where the colt and its mother were. And just as the wind and the sea obeyed him, he had authority over these animals. This was not a surprise party, and it didn't just happen. Jesus orchestrated and planned his own coronation because it was his announcement that he was making. The crowd recognized him as king, but Jesus is the one who announced and proclaimed that he was king. Jesus appointed the donkey and the colt for his purposes, and he knew the owners or whoever, even if they saw this property being taken, would not resist the disciples. You know, even in that day, people did not just let their donkeys be taken without an explanation. So in one of the other Gospels, it says, uh, Jesus said, if anyone asks you what you are doing, you you shall say, the Lord needs them. And that person, whether it's the owner or somebody else, he will send them with you at once. 
Jesus was ruling over everything, even the owner of those donkeys and those donkeys. Second, Jesus shows he is king by expecting unquestioning obedience from his disciples. Jesus said, go and find these donkeys. And, you know, we just read that part, so I'm not going to repeat it. But Jesus told them to go and carry out this assignment. Verse 6 says, the disciples went and, and did as Jesus had directed them. The fundamental issue for all followers of a king is obedience. The fundamental issue for all followers of Christ is obedience. And do you realize how bizarre this thing was that Jesus told them to do? Do you realize what a difficult command this would be to obey? I mean, it's, it's like if you were walking into Ankeny with Jesus and he tells you to go to 400 Southwest Camden Drive and there you'll find a Ford Mustang. The keys will be in it, start it up, and bring it to me. Would you do that? Cindy and I are made up just a little bit different. And sometimes she asks me to do something and I tell her, I don't have the chutzpah to do that. <laughs> that you might, but I don't. Well, when Jesus says to do something, you go and do it, no matter what. No matter how far out of our comfort zone it pushes us. And this is why it's so important to come to the Word of God with a heart of unconditional obedience. Whether it's the command to be baptized, to love your enemy, to forgive, uh, to earnestly desire spiritual gifts, to give thanks in all things, if the word of God commands it, tradition, comfort, personality, our personality, other people's opinions, everything has to take a back seat to what the Lord says. Jesus shows he is king by assuming the right to take and use what he needed. He takes the donkey and her colt because, according to the scripture, Jesus said he has need of them. He has the right to take and use whatever he wants, whatever he needs for his purposes. Jesus has the right to use you to take you and use you and anything and everything that you have any way he pleases. Your life is his. He may choose to use you as single or married, rich or poor, in very public, visible ways or in very private, unseen ways. It's all up to him. We give ourselves to the Lord for whatever he wants and whatever he needs for his glory. And all we do is say, do with me whatever you please. Jesus shows that he is king by calling himself Lord. He said, um, if, they, if anyone asks what are you doing, tell them the Lord has need of them. Not too many people can get by with calling themselves the Lord. 
But Jesus does. He knows fully who he is. And it's as natural for him to call himself the Lord as it is for you to call yourself by your first name. And when the crowd shouts, Hosanna to the Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest, Jesus does not correct them. He knows he is the one the prophet spoke about. He knows who he is. And he accepts their praise and their worship because it's completely appropriate. It's the only thing that's appropriate and fitting for a king. Finally, Jesus shows that he is king by the fulfillment of the ancient prophecy by riding into Jerusalem as king seated on a colt. And this is what verse 4 says in in Matthew 21. It says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. Anyone who knew the Old Testament prophecies, and I realize that most Americans don't know the Old Testament prophecies. I get that. But the Jews did. And anyone who knew the Old Testament prophecies would know that this man, this Jesus, riding into Jerusalem on the back of a colt like this, was claiming to be their king and Messiah. I mean, he was putting it right in their face. So by entering Jerusalem and claiming to be the Messiah and the king, Jesus demanded a response. We see only two responses uh, here in Matthew 21, uh, the crowd and the Pharisees. uh, And Matthew doesn't uh, really address the uh, Pharisees right in the middle of this story. He he goes on to uh, address the Pharisees' response in the rest of the chapter, and Luke does address them. But there's really only two responses in general, and that's what we see from the crowd, and that's what we see from the Pharisees. The, the, The Pharisees, of course, were furious about this. They did not want Jesus celebrated or praised or worshipped or acknowledged, accepted as king. And they still reject him. Jesus Jesus came in. He fulfilled the ancient prophecy. It was clear to all that he was proclaiming that I am your Messiah. I am your king. I am the king who's been promised and has come to you. But they would have nothing to do with that. But this crowd of Likely, very common people, they shouted and rejoiced and honored Jesus. Verse 9, which we've already read, says, And the crowds that went before him and after him, uh, and the crowds that followed him, were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a cry of worship. And we use it, and we sang it this morning. I was really glad that Luke did that this morning. We sang, Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna is a cry of worship that literally means save now. Save now, save now. They were, they were worshiping him as one who was capable of saving them now. That's what Hosanna means. 
They were celebrating the salvation the king was bringing. He was coming as king and he, he came with righteousness and salvation. And they were celebrating that. They did not fully understand God's program or God's timetable. And Tim did such a beautiful job of, of expressing that through his prayer this morning. I was just saying amen. They didn't understand fully God's program or timetable. They expected a king who would crush their political enemies. And someday he will do that. But now their cry for salvation would be answered with the cross. Because that was the salvation they needed right now. Even if they didn't know it. God had to deal with our fallen human hearts and set up Christ as king in our hearts before he sets him up as king of the nations. And they did not understand that at all. But these people did get one thing right. They saw Jesus as king and they celebrated him as king with unrestrained joy and shouting. Of course, the other response that a king requires is submission, and we talked a little bit about this earlier. But if you say that Jesus is king, if you say that Jesus is your king, or if you say even the phrase Jesus is Lord, that requires a complete allegiance and obedience to him. And so the question is, do you live your life under the authority of Jesus, or are you still in actuality, your own authority? Or is somebody else or some other entity still really the controlling authority in your life and decisions and actions? So do you live your life under the authority of Jesus? He is your Savior. He is your friend, which is wonderful truth he is humble and gentle full of compassion able to sympathize with our weaknesses but he is our king he is not here just to give you a little help a little guidance and a little coaching he is not here just to help you overcome a problem or a bad habit or make you more successful in what you have already decided to do with your life. Jesus comes in one way only. He comes as king. Behold, your king is coming to you. And so he comes with an all-consuming authority over every area of life. He comes to rule your every inner thought and attitude. He comes to rule your every word that proceeds out of your mouth and your every action. He comes as total king, one with absolute authority. And yet, the thing that Matthew points out here as one of the key elements of his coming is that he comes 
as a humble king. He comes in a humble way. And even though this event uh, is a glorious moment, there's something very humble about it. Uh, Jesus did not come on a chariot decked out with flowing robes. He didn't come with weapons like swords or spears or like some sort of warrior conquering king. Uh, There's no red carpet rolled out for him. There's just very common, ordinary people on the spur of the moment, nothing programmed, nothing pre-planned. They're just spreading out their ordinary clothes. And John tells us palm branches on the ground. And so we might ask, why so humble? If Jesus is such a great king, why is this such a humble coronation well it was humble because it was supposed to be that's what the prophet said the prophet said the messiah would come to the people that way your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey if if he came in some grandiose way it wouldn't be the jesus the messiah who is the fulfillment of script of scripture He came in a humble way because he was supposed to come that way, and he knew it. It was humble because Jesus is humble. I am gentle and humble in heart. I mean, there's a lot of things that we could talk about. But I think ultimately it was a humble coronation because Jesus was coming to die. He came to give his life as a ransom for many, he himself said. And he had an assignment As king, he was still king, fully king, didn't detract from his kingship at all, but he had an assignment as king that required the utmost humility. He had to humble himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Someday Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, Paul tells us in 2 Thessalonians 1. He will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in blazing fire, And in glory, dealing out retribution on his enemies, we will marvel at his appearing in that day. He will rule the nations in power and glory, but first, he had to remove God's anger for our sin and God's wrath toward our sin. First, he had to conquer the sin in our hearts first he had to conquer our own hearts and he did that by dying on the cross and eventually pouring out his spirit upon us and into us and all that had to happen before he can come back and rule the nations with the rod of iron that's going to happen but this had to happen first so Jesus came into Jerusalem he proclaimed himself to be the king But he is the king who dies for us. And we sing the song, Amazing Love, How Can It Be That You, My King, Would Die for Me. And when you see who Jesus is, and if if we could somehow grasp the, the, the glory and the grandeur and the greatness of all the Old Testament prophecies of who this Jesus is and what he will do, and then to think that he came 
to die for you and me. It, it truly is amazing love. But just before this event in Matthew 20, uh, just one chapter early, chapter 2018, Jesus told his disciples, Behold, men, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's me, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock him and discourage him and to crucify him. This was the plan, and he knew it. And his death was the great purpose for which he came. Again, he said, I came uh, to give my life a ransom for many. some kind of hero whose life ended uh, in a tragic way. He was not some kind of hero whose life was cut short and ended, ended in a tragic death. To him, death was the triumph. That was the victory. The work was finished in his death as king for us. So Jesus, as king, died for us. He is now our risen king, and we're going to talk a lot about that next Sunday, I suspect. And he is coming back again as our king, and we celebrate our king for the great victory over sin and death that he has already won for us at the cross. We worship him for his present rule as king in our lives. And we celebrate him as king for all that is coming, for all that he will bring to us in the future and the glory that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth. The writer of Hebrews said that Jesus came once to bear our sins, but he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who eagerly wait for him. So, <laughs> sorry, so much. So it's not all over. <laughs> uh, we've only tasted of the powers of the age to come. Uh, there is so much more to come. But Jesus has visited us. The king has come. And we live under his rule and his blessing right now, today. And you know what? We're supposed to celebrate that. The blessing of living under Jesus as king. And there's... I'm telling you, there's nothing better than living life with Jesus as king, Amen. now and forever. Amen. Amen. Chase, you want to go get the kids from the Sunday school? I'm going to have the kids come in here, and we're going to try to celebrate Jesus a little bit today. <laughs>